I'm going to go ahead and read our text for this morning for Ryan. It is from Acts chapter 5. And so if you will go ahead and stand with me as we read God's word. It's Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 12 through the end. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came... They did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked, and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, Keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, 
they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. See, I don't always have Megan read when it's really difficult names. You guys missed it. We were in a series going through Nehemiah, and there's a whole chapter that's like a, just a list of all these names that are ridiculously hard to pronounce, and Megan just nailed it, and we were like, wow. So uh, if, you know, when we get around Christmas time, if we decide to do the genealogy, you know, and we're going through Advent, you can expect to see her. So I just want to pray for us in our time in the Word. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you that you are in control and that no one can stop your plan, as that text says that we're getting into today. Uh, God, I ask that you uh, would give us hearts that long for you. So Lord, we pray uh, for our time in in your word today, that uh, it would be impactful in our hearts and that we would walk away changed. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. About uh, five years ago, Megan and I were in the midst of discerning a call to plant a church. And we went to this church planting boot camp in Chicago, Illinois. We were living in Indianapolis at the time. And I heard a sermon when we were there. Uh, This was all geared towards church planters, and I've remembered it till this day. And in that sermon, the pastor began to teach and preach, and and he was saying, hey, look, some of you feel called to to, uh, plant a church that's, that's all about doctrine, and it's got the best doctrine and all this expositional preaching. And he's like, well, that's good, but that's not enough. And then he's like, some of you feel called to plant a church that's all about evangelism, and you guys seek and save the lost, and you do anything to see the, the, the lost sheep be found. You give your life to that. And some of you are a church that wants to experience God, so you're all about worship and, and the experience of God deep in your bones. And some of you are about social justice and mercy, and you're about racial reconciliation, and you're about uh, uh, you know, seeing abortion be obsolete in our country. You're, you're about all of these things that you want to see. And he said this, are any of those churches enough? You know where I'm going with this. They're not enough because we've got to be all of those things if we want to be Jesus' church. If we want to be Jesus' church. And as I heard that, I remember thinking, man, that is an impossible task. And I think that's the place that God wants us to be. Where we look and we... And we try to, if we try to build his church in the flesh, that we see it as an impossible task. But if we let his spirit build the church through us as his willing servants, he will accomplish those things. Because here's what I know about you. Each of you are gifted and wired differently. And God has put different passions and burdens on your heart. And when those things come together, we see the church in a beautiful form. In a beautiful mosaic, we see the body of Christ at work. Now, the predominant theme of this text that we're looking at today is about Peter preaching in front of the Sanhedrin after they've been released from prison. Now, I want to draw our attention back to the Gospel of Matthew in the 16th chapter where Peter has an encounter with Jesus. I think this serves as a lens for us to look uh, forward to how, to how Peter is proclaiming the Gospel and what God has done. So, uh, in Matthew 16, 18, if you've got a Bible, turn there. If not, it'll be on the screen. There's this, there's this exchange between Jesus and his disciples, and in this exchange, uh, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, some of, some of these people say you're Elijah, some say you're Moses, some say you're a prophet, and they, they're saying all these things, and then Jesus asks a very uh, pointed question. He says, hey guys, who do you say I am? I know who they say I am, but who do you say that I am? 
And, and Peter pipes up in his you know, abrupt self, the thing that we love about Peter, and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says this, he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. My Father who is in heaven revealed this to you, Simon Peter. And then he goes on to say this about Peter's role in the church. He says, and I tell you, Matthew 16, 18, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell should not prevail against it. Now, our Catholic brothers and sisters would say that this uh, is, is the place where we see that, uh, that, 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 that Peter is kind of the head of the church. When you look a little more carefully at the Greek language behind it, the word for Peter and the word for rock are two different w- words. They're similar, but they're different words. And the way that it, that, it, that it lends itself for us to understand it is that Jesus was saying he would use Peter to build his church, but it would be built on the rock of that confession in Christ. So we've got that lens to look through to see how Jesus builds his church because we're not building a church. The only church that's being built is Jesus' church. And that's what our sermon is about today is some characteristics of Jesus' church. And the big idea of where we're going today is this, is that Jesus' church lives in community with one another and on his mission. So as I said earlier, this will be served somewhat as a state of the church address as we look back so that we can more effectively look forward. But there are three commitments that I see that are resounding throughout uh, throughout Acts chapter 5, and we've got a little bit bigger section of text today, but there are three commitments that I see. One is a commitment to the Word. The second one uh, is a commitment to the mission, and the third one is a commitment to one another, and I've chosen that word commitment very intentionally because I think that was the thing that was undergirding everything that we see in Acts chapter 5. So let's get into it. Uh, A commitment to the Word. So uh, in Acts uh, 5, 29 through 32, we see Peter's address, Peter's bold address where he's boldly proclaiming that, that Jesus is building his church. And so he says what Jesus wants him to say, he proclaims the gospel. Now, to catch you up to speed, what's happened here is the apostles had just been arrested, and then they'd been freed miraculously by an angel, right? An angel comes in, lets them out. And then what does the angel do? Does he just let them out and say, hey, boys, y'all go, y'all go back home? He says, no, I want you to go back to Solomon's porch and continue preaching the gospel. So they're kind of getting back on mission. And so what happens when they're at Solomon's porch is then the next morning, the Sanhedrin, who are the Jewish officials that arrested them in the first place, they catch wind that the disciples are preaching again. And somehow they got out of jail. And that guard probably lost his job for that, right? I mean, he's like, I didn't do anything. I was guarding it. And the angel of the Lord lets them out in the middle of the night. And then we pick up because Peter and the apostles are brought before the Sanhedrin again. And here's what Peter says. Peter and the apostles answered, Acts 5.29, we must obey, underline that word, God rather than men. Now, this is the first time that Peter said this. He's said this a couple times now in the book of Acts. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed. So he's got 70 leaders in front of him. He's pointing them. You killed him by hanging him on a tree. And, and, you know, hanging on a tree meant that a person was cursed in this day, okay? So God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. Now, that word leader right there is a, is a very important word because it's translated in a lot of different ways in the Greek language. 
One of the ways that it's translated is author, one is leader. Now in Greek culture, we don't see this in the Bible, but in Greek culture and writings of this day, it was translated as hero. So think about that. He's at the right hand as hero and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given those who obey him. So Peter's address begins and it ends with obedience. It begins and it ends with obedience. Now now think about this. Now, Peter is proclaiming the grace of God to his enemies who have arrested him time and time again and the people who killed Jesus. He's saying, look, guys, there's a way for you. This doesn't have to be how this goes down. You can receive forgiveness for your sins as well. It's like they don't even acknowledge the fact that he says that. And and the context of Acts chapter 5, looking at the first 12 verses, was this story about Ananias and Sapphira. Now, if you were here last week, you remember, maybe you weren't here, but you still know the story. Ananias and Sapphira were this couple that were a part of the church. Looked On the outside, looked like everything was fine. On the inside, they were, their hearts were deceitful. And, and the scriptures say that they lied to God, that they lied to the Holy Spirit because they wanted glory for themselves and they didn't want the sacrifice that was necessary to be a part of the church. And so what happens to Ananias and Sapphira? Well, they get struck dead. And we said, that's, that's a really troubling thing for us because we see God judge them on the spot. And that kind of catches us off guard. But it reminds us of the holiness of who God is. And so what we see with the whole Ananias and Sapphira thing is not that the church gets real skittish and they go and they run in the hills of Jerusalem. No, they stay in the city proclaiming the gospel. But we see that there are two responses to God's word. So there's one of two ways that you can respond to God's word this morning, if I can make that even more clear. Uh, God's word either melts us or it hardens us. God's word either melts us or it hardens us. Listen to this quote uh, by the... uh, the old British preacher, C.H. Spurgeon. He says this, the same sun which melts wax hardens clay. So think about a pot, think about a candle. The same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And And the same gospel which melts some people to repentance hardens others in their sin. What a sobering thought. The thought that the word of God could harden some of us this morning and it could soften us, some of us this morning. Ray Ortland, who is a pastor in the Acts 29 network that we belong to, uh, said it uh, even a little bit more pointedly. He said it like this. Every time you hear the word of God preached, you come away from the exposure to his truth, either a little closer to God or a little further away from God, either more softened toward God or more hardened toward God, but you are never just the same. And if you think that you can hold the gospel at arm's length in critical detachment, that very posture reveals that you are already deadened inside. The same truth, enlivening someone else is hardening you. And don't tell yourself that if God would only perform a miracle in your life, you would believe it and open up. Jesus performed miracles and the people who saw them only became further harden. God's word has an effect on us where it either softens us or it hardens us, but we never leave the same. When we have an encounter with God, we never leave the same. So let's look, just in Acts chapter 5, let's look at how the gospel melts some and it hardens some. So let's look at the melting first. Acts 5, 14, 
and 15. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that uh, even so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. So more than ever, I mean, do you guys remember when Peter preached at Pentecost and 3,000 people got saved? More, more than ever? I mean, this is revival in its purest form, what's happening here. More than ever, people are getting saved. And the, the presence of God is so tangible that people are willing to, to wheel the sick out and to put them on cots in the street just so that the apostles could walk by and they could be near the presence of God. Now, this wasn't saying that, you know, that Peter's shadow had any effect on them. They just wanted to be near to God. And this was the way that they saw God working through the apostles. They just wanted to be near him. He's melting the community. He's melting Jerusalem. They were doing anything they could do to get to Jesus. Acts 5.26, then the captain with the officers went and brought them. This is after they're arrested and they're back out on Solomon's porch preaching. And then, they, you know, they wake up the next morning. They're like, hey, where are the guys at? And they bring them back in. This is where this verse is right here. The captain with the officers brought them back in. But listen, he didn't bring them by force this time. They didn't bring them by force. And why not? For they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So the people that rejected them were now softened to such a degree that they were even protecting the apostles that were proclaiming this very offensive message. They were softened by the gospel. Now let's look at the hardening. Acts 5.13, none of the rest dared to join them. Now, this is somewhat of a confusing verse because this is right after Ananias and Sapphira, but we see that none of the rest, I think that none of the rest means either those that are nominal believers or those that are unbelievers. They don't want any part of this Jesus thing if they don't believe it because they just saw what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. That, that incident in the life of the church had a way of purifying God's people. So they don't want any part of it. And so we're starting to see a divide in the people that are just curious about Jesus and the people that want to give their lives to Jesus. Acts 5, 17 and 18, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them into public prison. So this is the first time that they arrest them in this text. So they put them in public prison because they're so frustrated that these apostles have such power because the Holy Spirit is working and moving through their ministry. It goes on to say in Acts 5.33 that when they heard this, uh, the word that the apostles were preaching to the Sanhedrin, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. It was offensive. Their hearts had become more and more hard toward God's word. So it's pretty clear where I'm going with this point, right? God's word softens us or it hardens us. Now, here's where I put the ball in your court. Where are you at with this today? Where are we at? Where are we at with what God has shown us? Are there things in our lives that we are just willing to turn a blind eye to because we think they're not affecting us? Church, those things are hardening your heart whether you want to realize it or not. They're hardening us. Every time that we ch willingly choose to disobey what God has shown us through his word and his people, we're getting a little bit more hard on the inside. And we know this from Romans chapter 1, where Paul says that the Romans were suppressing the truth by their disobedience. They were suppressing it. That means that our hearts aren't quite as responsive to the truth the next time that we hear it. 
And I, I would say that a mark of maturity, I was talking to a guy about this last night, a mark of maturity is not the fact that you don't sin, because we're all going to be sinners until Jesus returns. That's going to be our narrative. But a mark of mature, maturity for me is a quickness to repent. So you repent a little quicker than you did last time when you see your sin. You don't suppress it, you don't hide, you don't run away from it, but you repent a little quicker than you did last time because God has softened your heart to such a degree. So what is it for you? What is it that you're not obeying? Is your life just out of control right now? I mean, do you work 70 hours a week and everything else in your life is shot because you worship your job? I mean, is your, is your life out of control in what you eat? Is your life out of control in how much you sleep? Is your life out of control in, in how much you've got your kids involved in to the, fa- to the degree that you are unable to be a family together, to be a Christian family, to eat meals together, to share life together? That's out of control. That's not the Holy Spirit. Because Galatians 5 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That cannot be, if if our lives are spiraling out of control, that cannot be God's Spirit birthing that in us. What is it that's right in front of you right now that God has called you to obey? Now, I'll admit, I struggle with this just as much as any of you. You know, I feel a a high call to God's word as a pastor. I believe what the text says when it says that I am held accountable to a greater degree than those who don't teach God's word. I believe that. Two weeks ago, man, I almost just, I almost just ignored God. Okay, I had this lovely couple uh, that none of you in the room know that wanted me uh, to marry them and they were moving out of state and they had been living together and they had known each other uh, for quite some time. Uh, in their 50s and 60s, and uh, they, you know, they wanted me to marry them. And I had several conversations with the lady uh, about marrying them, and uh, she was, I was honored by the fact that they would invite me into that space in their life. But in the back of my head, I knew that this guy was not a believer and that she was. And I was willing, for the sake of comfort, for the sake of making my, my, one of my good friends and neighbors just excited and happy, I was willing to disregard the fact that God's word makes it so clear that I cannot do that wedding, that I cannot put God's stamp of approval on that because it is not a God-honoring relationship. It's not a God-honoring marriage. And I was willing to walk right down that road. And so I had to have this difficult conversation, and who knows, I'm, I'm praying that this guy's going to come to faith. But it was one of those things where it's like, hey, I think he's going to come to faith, so let's go ahead and do this wedding. And I was willing to walk right down that road just because I have this massive approval idol and I don't want people to think bad about me. I was willing to walk down and I was on the phone, headed to the dentist office in my truck with my son in the back. And, and I just remember the Spirit of God just speaking to me in that moment and reminding me of His truth. And I just simply asked her, if we go down this road... If we go down this road where we're willing to walk in disobedience to God's word, what will the consequences be? Because, mark my words, there will be consequences. Anytime that we willingly disregard God's will, God's word, there are always consequences. What about you kids? Time and time again, even in our house, you know, I, you know uh, children uh, obey the Lord uh, respect and honor your parents. How many times, kids, do we, do we just say, you know what, I don't think it's that bad. I'm just going to disobey them. I'm just going to disrespect them. I'm not going to listen to what my parents say. This commandment, kids, is, uh, it, it's the only commandment that comes with a promise. Did you know that? That when you obey your parents, there's a promise attached to it that you'll live long in the land. 
Your parents know what's best for you. And God has called you to submit to them. Find joy in doing that. Second thing is this, there's a commitment to the mission of God. There's a commitment to the mission. So what is Jesus' mission? I would say that Jesus' mission is, is that we would magnify Jesus by saturating the world with the gospel through these discipling relationships. The Great Commission says we're to make disciples of all nations. Teach them to obey all that he's commanded, to baptize, to saturate the world with the gospel. So as we think about this, I'm, I'm going I'm to kind of talk a little bit toward those that are that call New City Church home, um, and then we're going to look at the two, two aspects of the mission, okay? The internal mission for us as a church and the external mission for us as a church. Here's an important thing for us to remember. We cannot be sent on God's mission unless we are equipped for God's mission. We can't be sent unless we're equipped. So there's an internal mission that we have as a church to make disciples at New City Church. For us to be able to send people out to go bless the world with the gospel. This is the whole reason why Jesus spent three years with these men. Three years he spent with them, and, and more than just a once-every-other-week discipleship group, okay? I mean, he spent his whole life with these guys to equip them for the mission at hand. The whole reason that he does this. And this is why at New City Church, we focus so much on discipleship. Because if we're going to be Jesus' church, we've got to disciple like Jesus discipled. Now, you're going to be hearing a lot more about this, adults, uh, and, and our plan for this and what we've been doing and what we want to invite you to participate in in the next couple weeks. But specifically this morning, I want to talk about our kids. I want you to look around. I want you to look at some of the, the, the young children that are in here. Look at them. Get their faces. They're, I'm embarrassing them right now, but that's okay. So uh, look at some of those faces. And then let, let me ask you this question. What if some of the best gospel work that we do as a church is helping parents disciple those kids? What if that's the best gospel work that we do? Is that worth it? Absolutely it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. And being a covenantal church, we think that even if you don't have kids, you have a responsibility to some degree in helping parents disciple kids. Now the church isn't going to do it for you. It's not the programming of the church that disciples the kids. It's the relationships in the church. Right now we have a need. We have to bring in two to three outside people in our church to help care for our children every week. We have, we have a deficit in caring for our children. We need some people to step up to the plate. And particularly, uh, you know, ladies, but also guys, we only have two or three guys in the whole church that are serving in our children's ministry. And what we ask is just for once a month that you'd be willing to give your life so that children can be discipled and that we can come alongside and serve parents in helping them grow up in the gospel together. Jesus thought that kids mattered. You remember when the disciples in Matthew chapter 19, the disciples were trying to keep the kids away from Jesus? And Jesus says, hey, you guys have lost your mind. Let the kids come to me, for such belongs the kingdom of God. That's what he said to them. What would it look like for us to, to get healthy on the inside and for us to care for our kids well? Now, Sunday morning is not the only way that we disciple kids, but it's a big part of it. And I can tell you, my kids have been a part of a lot of churches. We've been in and out of four or five churches in this planting process, and my kids are growing like weeds in the gospel here. And I am so thankful for those of you that give your time, that give your, uh, your relationship with the Lord to those kids. 
because you are shaping them and you are changing them. And I'm grateful for it. And I want to pastor a church that my kids love to come through, not because we have all kinds of fun games and events and trips, but because they love Jesus. That's what Jesus' church looks like. So I want to invite you, if God tugs on your heart to participate in that, to reach out to Kelly and to, and to get in the game with us because it takes a village to disciple our children. Now the external mission, we see this is kind of building on this, this characteristic of, of, of obedience to God's word. And we see that there's this phrase that seems like a transitional phrase in Acts chapter 5, 12. And here's what it says, they were all together in Solomon's portico, on Solomon's porch. It says they were all together. You're like, okay, that's real helpful, guys. Let's not tell me what I need to do. Well, there's a lot more than meets the eye about this text right here. I'm going to show you a picture of uh, Solomon's porch here. So this is, uh, you know, obviously a more modern rendition than what was at the time, but you see... This is the temple courts where all those people are gathered around. And the outside where all those columns are, that's called Solomon's porch. Solomon's portico. You see the temple in the middle, the Holy of Holies, the big tall room in the middle. And uh, they were gathered together inside of the temple courts preaching the gospel. They were all together. The church was there. Now, why would they be preaching the gospel on Solomon's porch? Why would they be doing that? Well, if, we're, if we look back to Acts chapter 1-8, the mission is laid out for them, right? It says, it says that the, the, the gospel would go to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What would be the best place to reach Jews in Jerusalem? The temple courts. They're here on mission. They're here on purpose proclaiming the gospel because these are their brothers and sisters that are gathered here. And they're coming to tell them that, that the scriptures have been fulfilled and that the Messiah is here. They're coming to preach that gospel to them. They're here with intention. Now, many times we think about being on mission. We think about, um, when we think about mission, we think about we have to add something to our life. And you think, hey, Ryan, look, I just don't have time to add anything else to my life. I'm barely getting by right now. What if we flip the way that we thought about mission? What if mission was more about intention rather than addition? What if it was more about being more intentional with the things that God's already called us to do and put in front of us than adding more things to our life? Just what if that was the case? What would that look like? And I know that we need some help seeing these things. For instance, Unless you have Roman Levi Johnson in your house, most people eat 21 meals in a week. Roman eats about 46, but that's okay. He's three breakfasts every morning. He's eating for three hours. We can't get it. But you have 21 meals or so in a week. What would it look like for you to take one to two of those meals and be intentional in pursuing folks in the gospel? Maybe... Maybe once a week, like, you're, like my family does, maybe once a week you say, hey, what would it look like for us to have a neighbor over? Just someone from the church that we don't know as well that we'd love to get to know. Or what would it look like to have, you know, maybe, your maybe even your family if they live close around by, for the sake of growing in the gospel with them and opening your life. Or maybe you're at work and you have lunch every day and maybe you typically go out in your car to get away from everybody. Maybe once a week, once a week, you make lunch plans with someone that you work with. For the hope of getting to know them, hearing their story, and seeing what God might do in that relationship. What would that look like? 
Moms, you know, maybe, maybe you like, you have little kids and you are uh, blessed with the opportunity to stay at home and it's, it's really hard with little kids, I know from experience. Uh, and maybe God would use those little Chick-fil-A trips that you take and those trips to the park uh, as a part of his missional purpose in your life. What would it look like for you to invite the neighbor that's kind of you know, believes different things to you, but she's interested in the relationship. Or maybe if you're a mom that works full-time and you've got kids that are older and you're at the soccer field or you're at the lacrosse field or the baseball or basketball practice and you're sitting in the stands with everyone else that's just looking at their phone, right? What if you put down your phone and just engaged in conversation with some of the parents and just saw what God could do with it? What if we could do that? Now, kids, God has a special way of using you in mission. He has a special way because you have such a, you have such a heart filled with faith because of, because of your mere age, and God has blessed you with that. What would it look like for you and your family to pray for your family members together, to pray for those people on your street that you know that don't know Jesus? What, what would it look like for y'all to take a walk together in the neighborhood and get to know some other folks in your neighborhood? What would that look like, and how would God might use that? You know, just as a very practical note, I keep a note on my phone with my neighbor's names on it. You can't remember your neighbor's names, right? I keep a note on my phone with my neighbor's names and with anything interesting I find out about them so that I can pick up in conversation. And while I used to feel kind of embarrassed by that, now I'm finding that people feel loved because I care enough to write something down about them. What would that look like? Something very simple that we could do. Now, men, what would it look like for you to use your commute to work? for God's glory. Maybe to call someone that, you, that, you, that you're connected to that you never talked to, or, or maybe you listen to a sermon to get ramped up. That way, as soon as you walk in the office, you're on point and ready for God to use you as his servant. What would that look like? What would it look like for us to think about God's mission and be on God's mission together? Now, in Acts 5, 19 through 20, it says, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and go stand in the temple speak all the words of life. And they heard this and they go right back into their enemies and they begin to preach the gospel in the midst of their enemies. They've been faithful in the little things. God blesses them with more. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it like this, a 20th century martyr, German martyr and author. He says it like this, Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. Now, so we want to look at Jesus' model and how he, how, he, how he lived on mission, what Jesus did. So Jesus lived in the midst of his enemies. And last time I checked his enemies, that's you and me, okay? We were enemies of God. Remember what the text says? We were enemies of God. So he came and he dwelt among us. And at the end, all his disciples deserted him. They all deserted him. They ran away when he, went, when he was captured. And on the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. For this cause, he had come to bring peace to the enemies of God. So Christian, too, belong not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. There is his commission, his work. What would it look like for you to engage in relationship with people that it's not so easy for you to share life with for the sake of God's kingdom? Martin Luther goes on to say it like this. The kingdom is to be in the midst of your enemies. And he who will not suffer this does not want to be a part of the kingdom of Christ. Now, Luther, he's, he's throwing it on us pretty strong here, isn't he? It gets better. He wants to be among his friends, to sit among roses and lilies. Sounds so nice. 
Now, with, not with the bad people, but with the devout people. You, O oh blasphemers and betrayers of Christ, if Christ had done what you are doing, you would have never been spared. If our mission is to live out the life of Jesus, that's going to mean that we're living in the midst of our enemies. That's why Psalm 23 says, you prepare a feast in the presence of my enemies. You see, the danger is not with the enemies. The danger is being away from the shepherd. Jesus is with us in the midst of our enemies. And I just ask you this question, church, what do we have to lose? We have everything to gain and nothing to lose. In fact, this is what led Megan and I to plant a church. We began to see that the most effective way on the face of the earth to reach people with the gospel is through planting a church. That's what Tim Keller said. If he says that, I typically believe it. So the most effective way on the face of the earth to, to introduce people to Jesus is to plant a church. And in this exchange with and in the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 5, where this guy named Gamaliel stands up, I'm not going to read it, but when he stands up, he, he begins to recount history and to say, hey, look, there were these guys that rose up, and 400 guys followed him, and then he died. Theodos died, and then they all scattered, and then there was this other guy, and the same thing happened. And then Gamaliel says something very pointed. He says, if this is of God, nothing is going to be able to stop it. If this is his man, it's going it's to fail anyway. But if God is doing this, Nothing that we can, we can't mess it up. We can't mess this thing up. And I would beg to ask the question, are we just starting another church service in Gwinnett County or is God at work in our midst? And I think it's the latter. I think God is doing a great work in our midst. I know we're tempted to get discouraged. Those of you that have been with us from the beginning and you think we don't have 500 people, we don't have a building, we don't have all these things. But I can tell you what we do have. We've got a custodian that's not here with us, that's never been a part of a Protestant church before, that worships with us, church. She worships with us. How else would that happen? We've got kids that are being mentored in this school that don't have a father or a mother in their life, and they're, they're sharing life with Christians. God's doing something with that. You've got neighbors that are, you're sharing life with that don't know Jesus because we're planting a church here. The mission is carrying us along, and God is building a family as the mission carries us along. From my living room with 15 people to Cornerstone in downtown Lawrenceville with about 40 people to about 150 people that call New City Church home now, God is doing a work and we've got to continue to see the work that God's doing so we don't lose heart. God's doing it. He's building it. I can tell you. I wish I could tell you all the stories that I get to see, but I can't because I want to honor the individuals that we're sharing life with, but the gospel is going forth with power in this church. There, there are some of you that have said, hey, look, I lived further away from the church, but I'm actually, I'm going to buy a house that's closer to where we're ministering to people because I want to get some skin in the game so I can live on mission. That's three or four of you in the last year. That is so encouraging to see God doing that work. Lastly, there's a commitment to one another. Acts chapter 5, verse 42. It's one of my favorite verses in the book of Acts. It's this little verse that we look over most of the time. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching 
that Christ is Jesus. We see something here. We see that they are gathering together corporately and they're also meeting from house to house. Now that word for house to house is the Greek word oikos. And the word oikos is really interesting because it means extended family. So we see these little extended families. So don't think nuclear family. Don't think, you know, three or four or five, six of you. Um, if you're us, uh, but think extended family. There's 15 to 20 of them that are living on mission together. They're, they're living as the family of God together. And that verse is where the idea of missional communities came from, is that we could actually live as the family of God together in these tight-knit relationships where we actually care for one another instead of just coming in, absorbing a little biblical truth and getting on with our life, that we would actually care enough to stop and look each other in the eyes and love one another. That's what made the church so attractive. That's what God used. But we have two cultural obstacles that stop us. We don't really value, our culture doesn't really value life together. Now, our culture values the appearance of life together, but as soon as it gets tough, as soon as it doesn't give us what we want, we bail on it. Um, those of you that are in your 20s, I can say that because I just crossed into my 30s this past week. Those of you that are in your 20s, you struggle with this more than anyone because this is all you've seen. This is one of the reasons why we want to be an intergenerational church. There, there are those that have gone before us that are older than us that have much life to share and we need to be in community with them, not just with a bunch of people that are our age and our stage of life. We want to be intergenerational in the way that we share life together. The second obstacle is this, that if we do value life together, it's typically only toward people that are similar to us. We hedge our bets and we cut out people that could cause us any problems. And most of the time, God wants to use those folks in our life to make us more like Jesus. Here's the deal. Many of us are a product of what I call Southern evangelicalism. And you know what Southern evangelicalism says? It says, show up. Be cordial with one another, because we're good at that in the South for the most part, and keep your cards close to your vest. Don't let anyone get too close to you, because they're going to stab you in the back. The gospel blows all of that up, and it says, hey, y'all be the family together. That means you know each other's mess, and you know the beauty of what God's doing to redeem it in the midst of those circumstances. Church, we don't have to guard ourselves from each other. If the gospel is true, it has enough power to handle anything that we're going to come into as the family of God together. Let's test God in that. Can we do that? Can we test him in that? We don't have to put on floaties in the deep end. We don't have to diversify our investments between heaven and earth to cover ourselves. We don't have to do that. We can jump all the way in because Jesus is with us and his spirit dwells in us as a guarantee of that. So for some of you, this means that you need to get, you need to sink or swim on this thing. You need to jump in. Some of us have just come to church on Sunday mornings, and that's fine uh, to some degree, but you're never going to experience what life is like in the family unless you commit to more than that. And so as we're ramping up these missional communities for the fall, I want to encourage you to consider jumping in, jumping in and sharing life with each other. As we're ramping up discipleship groups, we're going deep with men with men and women with women. Consider that. Put yourself out there. Take a risk and watch God work and watch his body be a beautiful mosaic. I can promise you that this is not going to be easy, but I know the end of the story. I know, I know who wins this. Jesus wins because it's Jesus 
that builds his church. And that's the invitation today. We want to be a part of Jesus' church. We want to plant Jesus' church. So I hope you'll join us in that. Let's pray together. Father, as we read Acts chapter 5, there's so much good stuff in there that I didn't have time to get to today. But what we're struck by is not that more than ever people were being saved. We're not, that's good. We're not struck by that. We're not struck by the fact that a member of the Sanhedrin speaks this really wise word or that an angel of the Lord frees the apostles from jail. What we're struck by is Jesus. We're struck by Him because He pursues us. He loves us. And everything in us wants to bail to diversify our commitments. But you hold us strong. It was your love that held your Son, Jesus, to the cross. You wanted to be in relationship with us. And that was the way you made a way. Father, would you crucify our flesh so that we could experience what it means to be a part of Jesus' church. In his name we pray, amen.